It's great to be here with you guys. Uh, welcome. I am uh, just excited for all that the Lord uh, has in store for us this morning. Um, now, before we turn our attention to the Word, let's go ahead and dismiss our little ones to their Sunday school classroom. Now, as uh, the kids make their way out, will the rest of you please open up your Bible and make your way to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, this morning we are going to be covering the first 10 verses of chapter 15 in a message I've entitled, Lost and Found. Okay? Lost and Found. Um, VBS was just two weeks ago and we do have lost and found items there. And so um, just a plug there, if you're missing something, your little one forgot something during VBS, come talk to us. Okay, um, But This morning, uh, chapter 15, it highlights three of Jesus's most famous parables, I'd say. Uh, There's the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son, or what's more commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Um, The three parables are are very similar uh, in content, and I actually considered teaching all three of them in one sitting, but Uh, considering that we have plans to participate in communion this morning as well, uh, I decided that we will just be covering the first two parables, and then we will look to cover uh, the portion pertaining to the prodigal son uh, next week, Lord willing. Now, we normally do communion on the first Sunday of the month, which would have been last weekend, but I decided to push it out a week because some of the things that were going on, uh, we were a little shorthanded, and we were hoping to have live uh, worship this weekend. Um, there's a one of the people that used to lead us uh, is out on the CAG, and there was talk about maybe they'd be back, and then not back, and then maybe they'd be here. And so we we're like, okay, let's just push it one week, um, and, and we'll do that. And But then that is not happening now. We're not sure when that's happening. So I just, I talked to Pastor Nick. I said, hey, can you just do a communion song for us as well? And he's like, yeah, no problem. So um, we are going to go ahead and participate in communion uh, this weekend. If you were wondering, why didn't we partake in communion last weekend? That is why, okay? God had other plans is basically what uh, that is. And so we're going to go ahead and uh, partake of communion today at the close of our service. And so uh, with that, will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? Again, we are in Luke chapter 15 this morning, and our text is going to be verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read the word of the Lord for us today through my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along in your own Bible. So Luke, the physician, he writes the following in chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, or what woman, 
having ten silver coins. If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity that we have to gather here to open up your word and just allow your word to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive, that it is active, that it is uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. And your word promises that it will uh, go forth and accomplish that which you desire it to do. And so, Lord, we want to just submit ourselves to you and your word this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us in all truth. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, prepare us and prepare our hearts, our ears, to receive all that your Spirit is saying to us, your church. And so, Lord, we give you this time, we give you this study, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This morning, we're going to be looking at two very similar parables. Now, parables can be uh, deployed as uh, in various forms. They can be deployed as illustrations, uh, statements, uh, or stories of some kind as a means of teaching, as a means of giving instruction. In fact, parables are a very common form of teaching throughout most of Judaism. The word parable itself in the Greek is a compound word. The word in the Greek is parabole. Uh, para means alongside or beside, while the verb balo means to toss or cast or to throw. And so literally the word parable means to cast or toss alongside something or to cast or toss beside something. And in our context, the something that these parables are being cast alongside are heavenly truths. Within their use in the New Testament, Jesus often employed the use of parables in his teachings. He would tell a story or give an illustration that would be meant to come alongside or to be placed side by side as a comparison with an important divine truth about God and or his kingdom. I've often stated how a a simple way to think of parables is to consider them as earthly stories that convey a heavenly truth. As Jesus would teach, he would speak of hypothetical situations. He would give illustrations that would easily be understood by most people. The earthly story or illustration would make sense to most people as they would be shared. Many people that followed Jesus um, would struggle, though, with the heavenly truth. Okay, the heavenly truth Jesus was casting the parable alongside was usually only discovered by those who had a discerning heart and mind, by those who had ears to hear, those who were willing to listen and thoughtfully consider what he had to say. Unfortunately, many people that followed Jesus did not have ears to hear. Jesus spoke of how they um, have how though they were seeing, they did not see, and how they were hearing but they did not hear nor understand. Many that heard Jesus' parables were capable of seeing and hearing. They were fully functioning in their senses, okay? But they were not able to see or hear the truths 
Jesus was sharing because their hearts had grown dull. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, he said, in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. In our text this morning, we're going to look at two very popular parables, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 4 through 7, and the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. But before we get to those parables, there are a few things that I'd like to highlight and note from the opening verses of our text in verses 1 and 2. And so take a look at them once again with me as we look to understand the context in which Jesus is sharing these popular parables of his. Verse 1 says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees, excuse me, and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It is very important for us that we note how our previous chapter ended. For it shines a light, I believe, upon what we have described here in our opening verses. At the very end of chapter 14, Jesus was speaking about, the dis- about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. He concluded his teaching talking about salt and how it was good. However, if salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out. Okay? And the final sentence Jesus declared was this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think this is significant. Okay, I, I believe it's significant. For what do we see here in these next few verses? We see a large group of people drawing near to him in order to hear him. Right Now, within this multitude of people who have gathered around Jesus, there are four groups of people that are identified. And amongst those four groups, they were divided into two categories. First mentioned were the tax collectors and the sinners, and we're told that they drew near to Jesus in order to hear him. And so we have the two groups, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the category is those that came to hear him. Now, tax collectors were some of the most hated people in all of Israel due to the nature of their work and their association with the Roman government. Historic sources describe how These tax collectors were Jewish, uh, but they were given uh, opportunity to become tax collectors, and they would take that. And actually, they would bid on these jobs, and then they would be given a quota. And they'd say, okay, you know, here's, you're going to tax this area. You need to bring X amount of money in, okay? Now, what would happen is the tax collectors uh, would often overcharge the people, taking more than what was required and keeping the difference for themselves and vastly enriching themselves. Now, these tactics were widely known by all. Even the Roman government was well aware of what was going on, but they didn't care, okay? As long as they were meeting their quota, however much they got extra, well, doesn't matter. You need to bring me in this much. You brought in that much. You did your job. If you got extra, well, that's good job on your behalf, you know, kind of a thing. Tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jewish society. They were treated as outcasts. They were lumped together oftentimes with the worst sort of people, which brings us to the other group of people that were lumped together with the tax collectors, and those were the sinners. Now, you and I, we understand that all are sinners, right? The scriptures teach us that 
We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. But the idea here is that these were notorious sinners. These people were preeminently sinful. They were especially wicked. These were unrepentant sinners that lived their lives in such a way that they would be categorized as sinful and wicked amongst most God-fearing individuals. These were the people of the society that didn't measure up to the religious Jews' ideas about what it meant to be holy and what it meant to be righteous. And just like the tax collectors, they were treated as outcasts within the society, rejects that nobody wanted to openly associate with. Now, the other groups that were identified, remember I said there was four, okay? The other groups identified as being part of this multitude gathered around Jesus were the Pharisees and the scribes, okay? And we're told that they didn't come to hear Jesus. They're not part of that first category, okay? But they came to complain about what Jesus was doing. We've encountered these individuals throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees were the separatists of their day, as well as the principal religious sect sect among the Jews. The Pharisees considered themselves much holier than the common people. They would walk around wearing special garments to distinguish themselves from others, uh, long flowing robes and phylacteries on their foreheads and, and just things that would make them stand out amongst the crowd. They not only claimed to be strict followers of the law of Moses, but also of the oral traditions of the elders. And they would take part in some of the most strict observances of the law and traditions, such as uh, ceremonial washings and fastings and uh, prayers and almsgiving. Unfortunately, they would focus in on these minor things while leaving the major things undone. They majored on the minors, we would say, uh, while living a a prideful and pious life. They were seeking after the praise and affection of those who they viewed as less than them. Jesus often faced opposition from them. And the other group noted were the scribes. The scribes were those who sat in Moses' seat, explaining the law in the schools and throughout local Jewish synagogues. They were considered the experts in the law, were often described as lawyers uh, for their expertise in the law of Moses. Many of the scribes were also put in charge of transcribing the law. They would meticulously transcribe various scripts, uh, various scrolls of the law, that would be used in uh, the public reading of the scriptures throughout the local synagogues. Uh, Now, many of these scribes were members of what's known as the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jewish people in the time of Jesus. It was headed up by the high priest of Israel and consisted of another 70 members. So there'd be 71 in total, high priest, and then 70 others. Now, these 70 others, would, uh, most of which were either uh, Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, uh, some chief priests and elders, uh, and then there would be uh, scribes. During Jesus' day, uh, the Sanhedrin was notoriously corrupt. Okay? Um, the high priest was not a good guy, and if you know your Bibles, you know uh, why they were so bad. Okay? 
And just as Jesus did with the Pharisees, he also had a number of run-ins with the scribes of his day. Jesus often accused them of loading burdens upon the people that they themselves would not bother to teach. They accused them of taking away knowledge rather than sharing knowledge. Together they're seen in our opening verses not coming out to hear Jesus, but to complain about him and his actions. And I do believe that it is quite significant that Jesus attracted the outcast of society while the Pharisees and the scribes repelled them. Jesus had just challenged people to consider the cost of discipleship and what it would mean to follow after him. And it is the sinners, it is the tax collectors that have drawn near to hear him. They came to Jesus not because he catered to them or compromised his message, but because he cared for them. He understood their needs. He tried to help them. You see, all the Pharisees and scribes could do was ridicule them and churn away from them, not wanting to have anything to do with them. Jesus accepted them and he looked to share the love of God with them, while the Pharisees and scribes despised them and showed nothing but contempt and hatred toward them. And I believe this is very important for us to highlight, you guys, and to note for ourselves in regards to how we act today to the Lord towards those who are lost in sin. Do we act more like Jesus or do we act more like the Pharisees? Do we love others and care for them in their need and try to point them to Jesus or do we act more like the Pharisees and turn our noses towards those who are lost? Do we despise them and reject them and show contempt and hatred toward them? Or do we lovingly reach out to them and try to minister to them through love? It is sad that there are many in the church today whose actions line up more with those of the Pharisees than they do with those of Jesus. We need to repent ourselves. We need to allow the love of God to move through us and to share it with the world around us that so desperately needs it. We don't cater to the lost. We don't compromise the message towards the lost. But we do look to help them, to care for them, to point them to Jesus and to help them understand their need for him. This is how Jesus treated the outcast of his society and it is how we should act toward them as well. Now, the accusation that the Pharisees had was an interesting one. They accused Jesus of receiving sinners and eating with them. Now, the word receive, it carries with it the idea of welcoming or receiving one kindly as a friend. Jesus welcomed sinners. He received them as a friend would receive another friend. And this is something that the Pharisees, they had a great problem with it. In fact, this isn't the first time that they've confronted Jesus about his interactions with tax collectors and sinners. Earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus is seen having dinner at the house of Levi, the tax collector, who most of you may realize he also went by the name of Matthew. He became one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He is the author of the gospel of Matthew. Well, there in chapter 5 of the gospel of Luke, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Levi, uh, the scribe, and Uh, The scribes came along and they complained against Jesus's disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And, And this is how Jesus replied. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus spoke of the Pharisees and scribes and how they accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Listen, you guys, these were the very people that Jesus came for. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Pharisees had a big problem with this because they were the outcasts of society, these sinners, these tax collectors, and they viewed it as improper for someone who claimed to be a servant of the Lord to associate with such people. Sitting down to have a meal with someone in that culture, it showed a certain amount of identification and acceptance with that person. If Jesus was eating with such horrible people, then in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, well, he was guilty by association. Now, it is important that we understand the balance here and the overall context. It is very true that company, the company we keep can have a negative impact upon us. Okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 states, do not be deceived. Okay? Evil company corrupts good habits. Proverbs teaches us, he who walks with the wise, wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And in 2 Corinthians, it states, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness. And so we see that it is very important that we are mindful of the company that we keep. We don't want our company to lead us or tempt us into sin. But there is a balance that needs to be struck. Jesus met with and associated with sinners so that he may lead them away from sin. The thing that we must determine is whether our association with sinners is having a greater impact upon them or they're having a greater impact upon us, right? Are we leading them away from sin or are they leading us closer to sin? When Jesus met with sinners and tax collectors, he did so to lead them away from sin, to call them to repentance and into a loving relationship with him. Jesus was able to associate with sinners without compromising his integrity or his righteousness. And that is the standard we need to look to emulate as we associate and reach out to the lost. Jesus was able to meet with sinners and lead them out of sin. That should be our goal as well in our associations, in our interaction with the lost. That after spending time with them, that they would want to leave their sin behind them and come to Jesus. Now, this accusation of the Pharisees and scribes was meant to be understood as something horrible, as something that was condemning of Jesus. But in reality... They were proclaiming the glorious truth of the gospel. Do you guys realize that? Jesus does indeed receive sinners. And that is the glorious message that we preach, right? That Jesus receives sinners to himself and he grants to them his own righteous standing by grace through faith in what he did for all of us upon the cross of Calvary. As Christians, we have become partakers of this glorious truth. Jesus received us as sinners, okay? But he gave us his righteousness so that we can now be seen as saints in God's kingdom. What a glorious truth these Pharisees proclaimed unbeknownst to them unknowingly. 
they were trying to shame him, but they were bringing glory to him. Let's move along. We'll tackle this first parable that's recorded for us in verses 3 through 7. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Jesus spoke this parable in response to the accusation the Pharisees and scribes complained about Jesus. He spoke this parable to them that they may come to realize the reason why he does what he does, right? Jesus speaks these three parables as a way to explain to the Pharisees and the scribes the wonderful truth about his mission, that he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. These three parables, they all deal with similar imagery of things or persons that were lost, but then found, and then there being great rejoicing. We see this throughout all the parables in chapter 15. Jesus was addressing these Pharisees, but he's doing so within the welcoming ears of the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was sharing wonderful truths through these parables, but only those who had ears to hear would actually understand the significance of the parable. So let's break this parable down and understand it from the earthly perspective that we may then seek to understand the heavenly truth that is meant, it's meant to portray. So the opening of the parable is a question that most all would understand. And the answer is somewhat obvious to these listeners, okay, and, and to us hopefully as well. Jesus asked, which of them, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And the answer to that question is very simple. All of them, okay? That is what any good shepherd would do, all right? A flock of about a hundred sheep would be considered an average-sized flock for a shepherd to look after. And as a shepherd would lead his flock to various pastures throughout the day, okay, he would ensure that they all stay together and continue to move along to wherever the shepherd was leading. And by nightfall, shepherds would usually corral their sheep or they would bring them to a common pasture ground where other sheep and shepherds would gather for the night. And it was at this time that the shepherd would count his sheep to ensure that he had accounted for all of them. And if he found that there was a sheep missing, well, he would leave the 99 who were safe and sound and seek after the one. Now, when it says leave the 99 in the wilderness, don't think that a good shepherd would simply abandon his sheep in some desolate place all alone. That's not what's meant here, okay? The word wilderness can speak of a desolate, deserted place, but it can also be used to describe an uncultivated piece of ground used for pasture. And so we understand within this context, this is what would be referred to, right? Not a, a deserted place, but an uncultivated piece of land that would be used for sheep and uh, uh, livestock and cattle to, to graze from. So the shepherd, he leaves the sheep in the pasture. He goes out looking for one that was the one that was all alone. Also, it's important that we note and understand that it was very common 
for shepherds to gather in groups during the evening in order to take turns watching over their flocks by night. And so what would happen, there would be a common ground. Many of the shepherds from the northern land would come, they'd gather together, and then they would take shifts through the night so that some of the shepherds could get some sleep. You know, we, we know the story of Christmas, right? Now the shepherds are watching their flocks by night, right? So they would be taking turns through the night. And so the idea being portrayed here uh, is that that's what's happened here. Okay? With this in mind, we can understand that the shepherd probably has left his sheep under the care and supervision of some of the other shepherds who had gathered together at the end of a long day. Now, it is also important to understand that the one sheep is not more important than the 99 sheep. One of the points to this parable is to teach us that each individual sheep has great value and worth in the sight of the shepherd. Any one of the hundred could have been lost and the good shepherd would seek after. It's not just because this particular one was extra special that he would leave the 99. Any of the 100, if they had left, the shepherd would go after him. They all have value. The shepherd leaves the 99 because they are safe, but the one lost sheep is in great danger. Okay, the sheep was in danger as it strayed from the safety and the oversight of the shepherd. The one who cared for it and protected it was willing to even lay down his life in defense of it. The shepherd will go and diligently seek after the lost sheep and will not stop until he finds it. His persistence and determination to find the lost sheep is, an un, is unwavering. He would continue to go uh, after the one until he found it, no matter how long it took. Again, this shows just how valuable each sheep was to the shepherd. The shepherd could have done you know, a quick look around and then given up, thinking, well, well, you know, I've still got 99 out of 100. That's, that's pretty good, right? Uh, 99% success rate. Um, you know, I can live with that. But that's not what happens, right? That's not the case. The shepherd would seek all night if it took in order to find that one sheep. And when he does find the sheep, Jesus describes how the shepherd would take that sheep up on his shoulders, carrying it back to where it belonged, all the while rejoicing over this sheep that was once lost, but now was found. And when he makes it back home, he calls to all his friends and neighbors and shares the wonderful good news of his sheep that was once lost and now found. And Jesus then shares how this parable correlates to the kingdom of God. He says, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, I believe it is important that we understand this parable and how it relates to us. Okay? We are the one sheep in this parable. Okay? At one time in our lives, we were lost. Okay? We had gone astray. Isaiah 53 verse 6 states, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Speaking of the Messiah. Listen, we all have blown it. We've all strayed from God. The tax collectors and the sinners Jesus associated with, they were the sheep. And even the Pharisees and scribes were the sheep, even though they failed to realize it. When Jesus spoke of 99 just or righteous persons who need no repentance, he was not referring to the Pharisees. In fact, none of us have ever fit that description. 
Okay? Romans tells us that none of us are righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 states, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so don't get the idea from this parable that there are many who don't need repentance. That's, it's only the select few, you know, minuscule 1% that actually need to repent. And most of us are all good to go. That is not what this parable is teaching, okay? We are all in need of repentance. Every last one of us. The Pharisees and the scribes, they failed to see this and understand this for themselves. But the sinners who dined with Jesus, they readily identified with that lost sheep. They knew without a doubt, that's me. I'm that lost sheep. And, and Jesus is that good shepherd that's come for me. The Pharisees and the scribes could not understand it for themselves though. Now, as the sheep of this parable, it's important that we note how much God loves each and every one of us. We all have great value in God's eyes, okay? The one sheep wasn't more valuable than the 99, but each sheep had its own special value to the shepherd. And in like manner, we are each valued by God. We have been made in the image of God. We have been given great value. And so we understand that God loves us and He sees us as something precious invaluable. Okay? It's also true that in and of ourselves, we have no means of saving ourselves, just like the sheep who was hopelessly lost on its own and in great danger. If not for the shepherd coming and seeking after that lost sheep, that sheep would have been lost for good. Okay? It would have been attacked. It would have been devoured by predators like wolves and lions that preyed upon defenseless sheep. So too with us. If not, for God seeking after us, if not for the work of His Holy Spirit came coming to us and revealing to us our need for Jesus, we would have no hope for survival. The truth of the matter is that none of us seek after good. None of us seek after God. Again, Romans chapter 3 attests, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. You see, left on our own, we would never have sought after the Lord. It was God who sought us out. God who lovingly came to us and revealed himself to us. He would not give up on us until we were found and brought into his fold. And I see another truth in the description of the shepherd picking up the lost sheep and placing him on his shoulders and carrying him home. Listen, when we are found by the Lord, he's the one who does the heavy lifting. He's the one who carries us. He took us and our sins upon his shoulders and he completed the required work for us upon the cross of Calvary. We don't need to do anything to earn our place with him. He carries us home and he provides everything that's needed in order to have a right standing with him. Jesus completed the work that was required when he bore us and our sins upon his shoulders and we can rest in that completed work and how that our faith, excuse me, and know that our faith in that completed work will carry us to where we need to be. Another thing worth noting, just as there was great rejoicing by the shepherd when he found the sheep, so too there is great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The joy that comes with salvation is experienced by many. Okay? There's obviously joy on the part of the lost sinner, 
Scripture speaks of the joy that we have because of our salvation, the psalmist's request of the Lord that he may restore to him the joy of his salvation. Psalm 35, 9 states, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. The prophet Isaiah attests, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see, our own experience testifies as well to the joy that there is in God's work of salvation upon our lives. I hope that you and I could agree and say, yes, I, there is great joy knowing that my sins have been forgiven. And we understand that joy, right? But Not only does the lost sinner rejoice, but so does the Lord himself. God rejoices when we repent, when we turn to him in faith. Ezekiel testifies of the Lord, declaring, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God takes great delight and pleasure when we turn from our sins, when we enter into a loving relationship with him. But there's also great joy for the person whom God uses in finding the lost. When you and I share the good news with others and God uses us to bring them to a place of repentance, we too rejoice with the great news of a sinner turned to the Lord. And then we usually come back and we share that excitement with others in the body of Christ and they too rejoice over the lost sinner who comes to faith in the Lord. So much joy over one lost sinner found. The sinner rejoices, God rejoices, The person that God used in that situation rejoices and the church body gets to rejoice together. So much joy over one lost sinner. What a glorious thing to share and be a part of God's work of seeing the lost found. Now, the simple point of this parable is clearer to see. Jesus associates with the lost that they may be found, that sinners may repent and enter into a right standing with the Lord, that there may be great rejoicing in heaven. Let's turn to this next parable, which is really much the same as the first one. Read with me verses 8 through 10. It says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just as the previous parable opened up with a question, so too does this one. And it too was easy to understand, and the answer was somewhat obvious to all who would hear it. The question, well, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? That is easily answered okay, by anyone. The answer is every woman. Okay? Every woman would do that. Okay? Every woman would do this very same thing as described in Jesus' parable. But let's break this parable down and understand its earthly significance so that we may understand the heavenly truth it's portraying. The ten silver coins mentioned here are very special to the woman. These are ten silver drachmas, we're told. Okay? In the Greek, it's drachma. Uh, drachma was considered to be about the equivalent of an honest day's wage and so it's a significant amount of money okay it's not just loose change Um, but even more important than the relative value of these coins was the meaning behind them it is believed what 
that what is being referred to here is not just a lady losing a coin out of her coin purse or something like that. No, this is believed to be referring to a ceremonial headdress that was worn by married women. In that day and age, when a Jewish girl got married, she would wear a headbound of ten silver coins stringed together um, to signify that she was now a wife. Okay, If you're reading from the New King James Version, it has a little superscript there, and you can read it in the center column or in the bottom of your page. It gives you that details. Okay, Now, in today's day and age, okay, we could liken this situation to a woman perhaps losing a diamond out of her wedding ring, okay? A loss not only because of monetary value, but more so because of the sentimental value it possessed, right? And so it's in that light we understand the woman's frantic search for this single lost coin. She would light a lamp. She would sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And I'm sure we can all relate. You know, maybe we haven't lost diamonds from our wedding rings. I hope that no one's done that. Okay, okay, I see some people nodding their head. That has happened, okay? Um, You search frantically for it, I'm sure, right? But we do that too. We lose something. We lose the keys. We lose something. And it's like we tear the house apart looking for it, right? We're like the, the couches, cushions come undone. The toys get boxes get empty well at least in our house the toy boxes all get emptied out because one of them could have grabbed it through you know and we just non-stop we will look through every nook and cranny until we find that thing whatever it is we've lost okay that's the idea here okay the woman searches every nook and cranny of her house until she finds that missing coin and when she does find that coin she rejoices greatly she calls her friends and neighbors and calls upon them to rejoice alongside her Again, Jesus gives us the main truth this parable is being cast alongside. He says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the truths that we shared previously apply much the same here. The value of the coin is understood to be of great significance. Uh, The owner of the coin searches it out. Uh, The coin can do nothing on its own. Uh, And the joy that's shared by all uh, correlate much the same as it did in the first parable. So I'm not going to make those same points again. There are two things I want to draw out for our attention. uh, uh, And that is the means by which the owner found the lost coin. She lit a lamp and then swept her house. And the imagery here, I believe, could be important. I want to suggest that it is important. If we want to be like Jesus and we want to be used to help find the lost, we too must light a lamp and sweep the house. You know, oftentimes throughout the Bible, God's word is spoken of in association with light. Psalm 119 verse 105 proclaims, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 23 states, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Second Peter describes how we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. If we want to be used by the Lord in finding lost souls, which I hope we do, we need to make sure that we are operating in the light of the word. As we get into the word, it will help lead us. It will guide us. It will give us the words to share, the truths to speak forth, so that the lost may hear God's word and know God's heart for him or for her, 
Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 3.15 exhorts us to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, not only do we need to be operating in the light of the word, but we also need to make sure our house is clean. What do I mean by that? What I mean is simply this. If we want to be used by God in finding the lost and bringing them to the Lord, we need to make sure that we are living the kind of life that is consistent with what we claim as believers. It will be hard to witness to others about the Lord and their need to live for Him if we are not doing the same in our own lives. In this last Wednesday night, we read about the account of Lot in our study of the book of Genesis. If you're not familiar with the account of Lot, it's a very sad account. Because although Lot was considered righteous because of his faith in God, by his own example, by his actions, his deeds, by the life that he lived, he was not able to sway the people of Sodom to turn from their sin and follow the Lord. Even those closest to him did not receive his counsel nor his warning. He had blown his testimony by making a series of poor choices and compromises that left him with no credibility. He had blown his character and testimony and was useless in trying to turn the people of Sodom. You see, when God saves us, He cleans our lives up. He washes us. He cleanses us from all sin. But we need to continue to live for Him each day afterwards, especially if we want to be used by Him to impact the world around us for Christ. If we want to be used in bringing the lost to the Lord, we need to have a witness okay, that lines up with what God's Word says. Right? We can't go to people and say, hey, you need to live for the Lord and and churn from this life of sin while we're living in a life of sin. They're going to say, well, why would I do that? Just like Lot. When Lot said, hey, get out of this place. The Lord's going to destroy it. You know what they thought? They had, oh, he must be joking, right? Lot the jokester. He can't be serious, you know, about God because look at his life. He's not serious about God. We need to have our houses swept in an order as well. 